yeah, you beat me up, but there's still a monk somewhere hidden in a mountain somewhere who would kick your ass. Did anyone ever ask those monks, like, hey, would you be able to beat a college wrestler who has a double leg that you can't stop? They'll probably be like, no, I can't. (laughs) This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. So today will be just me and Paul discussing a pretty common problem that we see often online and with people we know. So what's today's topic, Paul? Today's topic is people who think bad and other stuff too. So essentially, why do people believe shit that's not true or don't change their mind when faced with the facts? I think they have a hard time recognizing their own fallacies and it's hard when you have that POV. What kind of POV? So a lot of times when you're, let's say, a fighter in the ring, there might be things that you can't see that your opponent is doing, but your cornerman and your trainer can. It's up to you to listen to them and self-correct in order to win. Or else if you keep doubling down on your bad habits, that's a surefire way to lose. And why would people insist on doing things the wrong way then? A lot of times people just don't want to be told that what they're doing is wrong. It doesn't feel good. You might be doing things a certain way. And if someone says that's wrong, then you're like, well, fuck you. I'm just going to keep doing it anyways. And it's all forms of motivated reasoning, meaning you have a motive to believe something. So the first reason I'll cover is that people are incentivized not to change their minds. So if you're selling crystals or you're a homeopath, Recognizing it's all bullshit would destroy your whole livelihood. So essentially, you can't afford to change your mind. If you built a media empire on bullshit, you won't turn your back on it. Not because you're right, but being wrong will cost you too much. So lawyers pay by big tobacco or lobbyists for corporate polluters. If they change their minds, it would cost them their jobs and their whole career. When arguments are incentivized, then truth is no longer the point. The point is to make money. Or the point is to gain whatever you're seeking to gain. It could be power also. So incentivized economics is not necessarily pro-truth or pro-facts or pro-science. It's pro-incentives. You know, that reminds me of the quote by Upton Sinclair when he said, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. Yeah, he actually said that because he was not only a writer, but he was involved in politics. So he saw that there was a lot of lawyers or other middlemen where they were paid not to know the truth or to dismiss the truth or to avoid the truth because their salary depended upon it. So I think he was the first one in American social consciousness where he was saying, hey, We're not always about the truth. And we thought capitalism was the best way to get to the truth. And he's saying sometimes actually money can incentivize you to be against the truth. 
Well, oftentimes when you mention about how people get caught up in things that they know are bad, but they have no choice but to double down, you look at all the people caught up in pyramid schemes. Early on, you know, maybe this is bullshit, but then by the time you've signed a deposit or you've convinced all your friends that this is a great way to make money, you can't back out without looking like an idiot. So you just double down on this terrible strategy. Did you know anybody in pyramid schemes? Unfortunately, yes. I did know. But they don't even call it that, right? Because that would mean they are admitting to the truth. They call it like multi-level marketing or network marketing, or they have other names they call it. I don't know what euphemism they have for it now, but it's essentially the same. If you're focused on selling to others as opposed to an actual product, it's most likely bullshit. For a while, there was that one telecom company, ACN, I went to a couple of meetings and then I got banned. So I started using fake names (laughs) because once you start asking even simple questions such as, well, what are we supposed to sell? Oh, we're selling video conferencing phones. And then it could be, but what's the point of selling video conferencing phones when there's Skype? Wait, how did you end up there? Initially, there was somebody who told me of a great business opportunity when I was in college. And I thought, that's great. Where do I have to go? What do I need to dress? Who doesn't like business opportunities or opportunities to make money. I do. And I should have been tipped off when the meeting was held at someone's house. Someone's house. Are you selling Tupperware? And even then, I could get behind that because I'm selling Tupperware. There's stuff you need. (laughs) Sam, do you have a lot of food in your house? Have you ever wondered, oh, I want to store it? Well, I got a solution. That's a problem. Yeah. That's a real problem that needs to be solved. Yeah. But instead, it was... 20 minutes of them selling an idea and I thought oh no oh no I need to get out but then my other friend provided a rise like I can't leave this is before Uber and Lyft I can't leave what am I gonna do so I was stuck there whenever somebody comes up to you and says hey are you interested in a business opportunity it usually ends up being a bad idea I'd say nine times out of ten it's a terrible idea not a bad idea a terrible idea I would actually say a hundred percent of the time somebody said that to me was a bad idea I've never had somebody who said that and they said, yeah, would you like to apply to work for Facebook or Apple or Google? It was never like a thing like that. It was always some pyramid scheme or it was some door-to-door sales thing where they didn't have to pay me anything. And in fact, I had to pay them. So the business opportunity was for them. I pay them. They never told me whose business opportunity it was. They just told me a business opportunity. I want to go back when scams were simple, when I just had to buy a bunch of the product and sell it because I'm used to it. I did it in school. You just bought like those chocolates they sell in school. You bought a box of it and then you have to sell it to neighbors and friends. At least I understood, okay, I'm selling chocolate and I have to sell 50 or 100 of these. I get it. But when you get caught up in a pyramid scheme, it's easy enough to rationalize in your head. Oh, that makes sense. All I need to do is sign up 10 people and I can easily sign up my friends and family. And then from there, anyone else I sign up, it's all free money. And then if you're never taught to understand principles of critical thinking or deductive reasoning, you're not going to think further than that. It's just, I need money. I need to make money. Here's why, here's an easy way to make money. I'm going to go for it. Funny enough, every person I know who tried to sign me up for pyramid schemes are also now all Trump supporters. That makes sense because it's one of those things, it's a claim made without evidence. And then if you're going to fall for one, you're going to fall for the other. I think it also says something about their morals because I think 
<laughs> Basically, everybody I know who had loose morals likes Trump. So how many Trump supporters would you say you know or keep in touch with? I probably know a bunch. I don't keep in touch with many of them. Just like I knew a lot of gangbangers in high school and I don't keep in touch with a lot of them. It's, you know, it's not like, oh, we have different ideas about sandwiches. I like mine with peanut butter and jelly and you like yours with peanut butter only. It's not like a stylistic choice between how you're going to have a sandwich where they're both equally valid and they're both equally morally good or morally neutral. It's not something like that. A lot of those people I know who are also pro-Trump, they tend to also be the ones I know who, you know, do a lot of shady stuff anyway. Like, I just knew a lot of shady people and those same shady people like Trump. So even if they didn't like Trump, I grew out of being friends with them anyway. So do you think in a way this episode is for them to really understand how to think better? No, because I think they're avoiding me also. (laughs) I think they're avoiding anybody they know that makes them feel bad about their decisions or people who are like, maybe you shouldn't do that because that's illegal. Or maybe you shouldn't do that because that's fraud. They just don't want to be around those kind of, you know. (sighs) Yeah, they probably think of us as goody two-shoes or something. Hopefully this can be a good episode for their kids to stumble upon. Yeah, a lot of Reaganites... (laughs) raise kids who are now socialists so anything can happen actually that brings me to my next cognitive bias which is identity protective cognition and this is another reason why people think bad and not want to change their minds because your identity or membership to a tribe depends on you holding certain beliefs so rather than just incentives like money or power it's more of being part of a group or a tribe or your identity So changing your mind would cost you membership to your group or identity. So you would lose too much by accepting the truth. Like, I know a lot of atheists who went through a lot of trauma because not believing not only meant they lost their whole community, but they lost their friends and even were outcasted by their family. And also, they lost that security blanket of when shit's going bad, they can just be like, well, God's going to be there. It's all part of God's plan. They have to give up all of that. So truth in fact, maybe a threat to your social identity. It could cause you social harm. So your primitive brain will build a wall to protect you. I mean, what if you found out some truth you weren't ready to find out and you just killed yourself? Like in one of those revenge movies. Or like Old Boy. Except he didn't kill himself in Old Boy, but he ripped his tongue out. But, but the truth in that movie was so unpleasant for him that the pain of ripping his tongue out was less painful than the truth. So you deny truth out of self-preservation. I don't know how many Christians I know who say, if they found out God wasn't real, they'd kill themselves. So truth is literally lethal to them. I think taking a step back, if you look at people who, especially after 9-11, identified strongly as an American because that's the only country they knew, they grew up in, But when you're faced with some hard truths about, you know, the U.S. involvement in other countries hasn't always been for humanitarian purposes. It's like, well, what do you mean? Well, don't you ever wonder why all these Central and South Americans are coming up to America? You can say, well, they should stay in their country and improve it. But there must be a reason why they're coming up here. 
do you want to know what the U.S. did? And they don't want to find out and they want to double down. And this is also where xenophobia light comes in, where they might not want to really know why these people, quote unquote, come in, take our stuff, which they literally can't. You can't physically steal someone's job. I can't go out of my car, someone hits me over the head, and the next day they have my job. They <laughs> check into work and they're like, I'm the new consultant for this client. They're like, okay, what happened to Paul? I took it. All right, then I guess you're the new guy. That It doesn't I work that way. I took this job from you, man. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. It's mine now. <laughs> yeah, until we get to our phase when we can upload our entire knowledge base into a USB drive or a cloud-based storage, it's not going to work. I stole your USB job. Well, see, now I'm fucked. Now I'm going to have second thoughts about letting these quote-unquote dangerous illegal immigrants in who could literally steal my job now. Yeah. Like country to people is their heritage or you could think of it like a father because a lot of times those leaders you like, like a Reagan or whoever, you thought of them as father figures. So think about this. What if you found out your dad was a serial killer? Which in a lot of ways, you look at the history of the U.S. And if you think about the U.S., like your father, like the fatherland, I mean, that's what a lot of patriotism is, then our father was a serial killer. Or something I've seen from our own community, like Korean Americans, a lot of them think that they came from royal blood when they actually probably came from peasants. I mean, that's, that's just more likely. Or you're Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg, and you thought you were a superhero when you're really a supervillain. Are you ready for the truth? To protect your cognition of yourself, to protect your sense of self and ego, you'll probably reject the truth because it's painful. It's like that old saying, it's a hard pill to swallow. You know, you see it a lot, especially play out in politics. People say it's happening with Trump, but it happened with Obama too. There's a lot of stuff that Obama did that probably wasn't kosher. If you look at all the drone strikes he approved, the Flint water crisis. Yeah, man. And not to mention all the whistleblowers that he offered no protection to. And then there's the immigrants. So if you looked at Obama straight up as a report card, he didn't do that great. But because people liked him, he was a smooth operator. He spoke well. He came correct a lot of times. He looked presidential. So it was easy to have that bias come in. It's like, well, he's our president. We need to support him. Well, he must have had a good reason. And even if those policies bled over into Trump, like, you can't do that. It's like the last guy did it. It's like, well, so now you can't help but show your bias. Yeah. A lot of the bias is how you act. So because of the way Trump acts, we don't give him any benefit of the doubt, I guess, which is good because then he exposes things presidents have been doing. And because of Trump, we're actually questioning previous presidents. Whereas Obama, who was liked by a lot of people, you gave him the benefit of the doubt. You just assumed whatever he was doing was for a good reason. You didn't know why he was bombing people. You didn't know why he was, you know, deporting people or actually he had actually tear gassed people at the border also. But, you know, we just thought it must be for a good reason. But we don't have that same bias for Trump. That whole veil is lifted for Trump. And we're just like, fuck you. We see what you're doing. And not that what he does is right. But 
it's one of those things where, man, if we were this hard on Obama, we could be even harder on Trump and no one would call us out. But unfortunately, here we are. Because we've become fans of presidents when we should hold that title accountable. We should always be skeptical of the people there and we have to hold them to a certain amount of responsibility. We shouldn't be their fans because they work for us. It's not like a sports team where we just go along with whatever they do and there's a rival sports team. It's about the seat. And we have to always hold the seat of the presidency accountable. And we should never be fans of the president. This might be a whole new topic or a different can of worms, but would you say we should elect policies and not people? Yes, in that the people who we elect, we should elect them because of their stances on policies, not because of their personalities. Personality matters also, but I think it's secondary to the policies they represent because all they are is an amalgam of policies. That's what a politician is. Now, if you're a person with shitty policies, but a good personality, then you're just a wolf in sheep's clothing. You're coming out, presenting yourself one way, but your policies might be very violent or vicious or hurtful. And Obama is actually a good example of another bias, which is called the science comprehension theory. Because people like Obama and other elite Democrats, they think the problem is if the facts are properly explained, people will believe it. The problem is in a lack of understanding. But already with the previous biases that I mentioned, we've proven that theory wrong. And science and statistics of people's beliefs has constantly proven science comprehension theory wrong over and over again. But people still assume it's true. So it in itself is a logic bias because it's hopeful. Because if that's the problem, that's easy to solve. Like Obama's whole thing was about hope and change. But just explaining things to people doesn't work. Not if it costs too much to change your belief. So there's the protective cognition, as I mentioned before. It's a form of self-defense from mental anguish. That sounds like the thing that's afflicting a lot of anti-vaxxers and people who deny climate change. Yeah, because it would be painful to find out you were a dumbass all this time. So you would rather deny that truth and just go along assuming you're right all this time. But if it didn't cost you much, if it's like, hey, Paul, this is a faster route, you might try it. But even something so small as not all dietary fats are bad for you, for some people, that change in belief is too costly. Or sometimes people just won't change their belief because that's just their personality, which you were mentioning earlier. That's just how they are. Some people are just going to be like that. But if it's something minor and you can't see how it'll affect your identity or anything else, like here's a new exercise. Here's a new app you can try. And it's free. Okay, people might try it. They might change that little bit. But if it's something like changing a belief that I've held for a long time and it'll make me feel stupid now, or it'll cost me my identity as a Republican or as an anti-vaxxer or whatever, then the price is too high. So the problem isn't that it hasn't been properly explained. That might be part of the problem. But like we were talking to Rachel, just because you explain it to me doesn't mean you can control my reactions. I'm still going to react however I'm going to react. So even if you tell me the truth, even if you explain every bit of it to me, doesn't mean anything is going to change. 
And I might still hold on to those false beliefs. You know, one of the examples I think of that's kind of funny, and it doesn't necessarily cause global harm, are the people who still hold on to a lot of traditional martial arts, not as a tradition or something that they do as part of their culture, but as the ultimate form of fighting or self-defense. And then when they're slapped with a takedown or a boxing right hook, they're like, what the fuck was that? And then they, instead of saying, maybe we've been doing it wrong all this time, they just double down and they come up with different excuses. Yeah. After UFC won, anybody who trained martial arts thought, oh shit, this is the eye-opening moment and everybody's going to change and all of martial arts is going to change. And that shit didn't happen. Even people who got their ass kicked didn't (laughs) change their beliefs. They just thought, oh, my chi wasn't strong enough or I didn't do it right or maybe... Yeah, you beat me up, but there's still a monk somewhere hidden in a mountain somewhere who could kick your ass. Did anyone ever ask those monks, like, hey, would you be able to beat a college wrestler who has a double leg that you can't stop? They'll probably be like, no, I can't. (laughs) Like, yeah, but that's not what we were training anyways. And it's like, well, there goes that theory. Because, you know, if they really, if they're a real monk, they're humble anyway. And they're not about fighting anyway. So they'll be like, yeah, that guy can kick my ass. That's not what this is about. For me, this uh, martial arts is an extension of my Buddhist uh, Zen practice, right? Yeah, and then they're like, wait, where'd you get that idea? Who's saying what? No, no, no. You misread the whole thing. But I learned it in movies. It's like they're learning from that scene of uh, Dragon Ball when Krillin and Goku train early on. And they just assume, oh, that's what they must be doing all this time. They just train how to fight. (laughs) Well, that's the other thing, right? We mistake fiction for reality. Like a lot of people who grew up on science fiction think they know a lot about science. And there's real science in science fiction, but sometimes they take it a little bit further and make up all kinds of weird beliefs because they read it in a science fiction book or maybe a fantasy book or, you know, in movies. A lot of our ideas come from TV shows and movies and cartoons. We don't know that's where these ideas came from, but our ideas came from somewhere. And what do we consume the most? Entertainment. Yeah, and even historically, if you look at how ninjas actually were in Japanese artwork, they didn't wear all black. It's something they came up with after the fact. Actually, that started from movies. Yeah, and then Vikings never had horned helmets because that would be a dumb, dumb way to get caught up right away in an actual fight. That's just something they came up with after the fact. But it looks cool. Yeah, but people think, yeah, Vikings had horns on their helmets and ninjas wore all black. It's like, no, that's not true at all. So it becomes a common myth. It becomes a held belief. Correct. One of the biggest forms of protective cognition is political identity. It's so big that it becomes its own bias. So let's think about some non-controversial apolitical topics. The earth is round. Apolitical. Pollution fucks up the planet. Apolitical. No scientific controversy there. Washing your hands helps remove germs. No scientific controversy. Apolitical. But it's only apolitical until it isn't. Meaning apolitical doesn't mean it's apolitical because of subject matter or because of science. It's apolitical until politics gets involved. So we think there's some sacred subjects and sacred facts that are always going to be apolitical. And it has nothing to do with that. Politics is all about whatever politics gets involved in. And if it's not involved in it, yeah, it's apolitical. And when it gets involved in it, then it becomes political. And that's it. 
And once politics does get involved, then belief has nothing to do with science, but political identity. So my political identity says the earth is flat. My political identity says pollution is safe, that vaccines don't work, and so forth. And I'm going to go down the line and believe everything that my party believes. And a lot of people tend to do that. They go down all the same speaking points because if that's what my party believes, that's what I believe. Penicillin works. We all agree, right? But if one political party says it doesn't, then tomorrow half the country will stop believing it works. You see this with certain religions. If the religion decrees something, then that's your new programming. And going against that means losing not only your religious identity, but also your religious community and friends. You know, it's interesting because for the pollution talk, I see who benefits. The old Latin question, qui bono? It's people and companies that do a lot of the polluting will want to push out an agenda that says it's not that bad. Here's quote unquote proof. Here's evidence that we got from scientists that we hired. Same thing with anti-vaxxers because they're selling homeopathic medicine and natural ways to do it. And there's a secret they're not telling you. But if you buy my ebook for $500, it lists everything. But the flat earth, that's weird. I don't know who benefits from that. They say it's anti-NASA and it's the government trying to push an agenda. But who's making money off of flat earth other than like merchandise? If you trace how that became popular again, I think it really started with trolls. They were first doing it as a joke and it was all happening on YouTube. But those YouTube channels started getting really, really popular. And then once you get a YouTube channel up to a certain subscriber count, then you can start monetizing. And then they started monetizing. And it could be different incentives. You now became an expert in the field. You became an authority in the flat earth world. You had all these followers. Not all of it is always about money, but there was money involved too, because now you have all these subscribers, people sending you money on Patreon and GoFundMe or whatever, and buying your merchandise, buying your DVDs about trying to prove it. And then maybe some of your acolytes actually do really believe it. That's the thing, because let's say a guru of a cult is making a lot of money, but some of your acolytes, they make no money doing this, and they'll be even louder than you trying to spread your word. So I think it's the same thing with Flat Earth. It happened now because we're in a time where you can make money through social media. You don't necessarily have to head a giant corporation now to make money. Look at how much money Alex Jones makes. All the people who are like conspiracy guys who are against big companies, they're all incorporated and making a bunch of money on YouTube and from their websites and selling products. So there's still definitely money to be made. It's just that YouTube needed to exist for Flat Earth to take off again. You know, it almost sounds identical to how those 9-11 truthers first got their start because the guy who directed that YouTube documentary or documentary Loose Change, it started out as a pet project. And then once he got funding for it, he quote unquote started to see the truth or he just got paid off. So like you said, once money got involved, then things change. And that's the thing that people don't recognize is they tend to mistrust things that people are making money off of. But now there's so many creative ways for people to make money. They can't always see all the ways these so-called whistleblowers of truth are making money. And when I say whistleblowers of truth, I'm talking about people who are actually just spreading bullshit and claiming to know the secret truth. 
and you're thinking, oh, okay, why would they lie about this? I can't see how they're making money. But just because you can't see how they're making money doesn't mean they're not making money. There's a bazillion different ways to monetize things now. The only people not making money are leftist MMA podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> so the next bias I think that comes up a lot, and we talked about this in the episode with Rachel Fox, which is plausibility bias. Meaning you believe what's personally plausible to you. But plausibility is not based on science or actual probabilistic math, but it's subjective to each person. So let's say you go to Joshua Tree and do some psychedelics and you saw some aliens. Some people might think they really saw aliens because to some people, that sounds a lot more plausible than they hallucinated. A book fell off the counter. For some, it's more plausible that a ghost did it than any scientific explanation. You remember something, like you remember seeing your grandma in a photo. Then sometime later, you find the same photo and grandma's not there. To some people, a supernatural explanation is more plausible than you having a shit memory. No, it can't be you that's wrong. The world is wrong. Meaning for what you believe about supernatural, for that to be true, all other laws of science have to be wrong. So what's more likely? Every other law of science is wrong or you're wrong. People are ego-based. And to ego-based people, you being right and the universe and laws of physics being wrong is more plausible. Some people will never even believe in coincidences. It's all unseen mystic forces. That's what makes sense to them. But how do you change someone's whole system of plausibility? How do you teach a gambler who keeps losing that the house will eventually win if you play long enough. I don't know. And there's still no good way we figured out. So people have been thinking about this for thousands of years. But what it looks like is it's hardwired. Yeah, didn't they call this, and correct me if I'm wrong, post hoc ergo propter hoc? The post hoc fallacy? That's where after you're all done, you're like, I meant to do that. So... We're not looking at how they reason this answer. A lot of times it's whatever you first believed. That's what becomes your ultimate truth. You believed in ghosts as a kid, so you still do. You believe in mysticism, reading fantasy books and astrology, so you still do. It becomes your autopilot. It's your programming. You know, we're not that different from robots. And just like robots, it's difficult to self-program and self-learn and change your own initial programming. Do you know what a Rube Goldberg machine is? What's that? You'll see it in movies where you drop a ball, it goes down this thing, and then it hits a domino, and all these dominoes hit, which wakes up a cat who jumps up, which turns on a lever that does this and that, and it cracks an egg, and you have fried eggs now. Okay, I've seen those, yeah. It's essentially mental gymnastics. Like the laws of science being defied makes more sense than coincidence and dumb luck. So how did this happen? The simple answer is dumb luck. It's a coincidence. But no, the mental gymnastics of gravity not working and cause and effect not working and, you know, momentum can just stop in midair and go the opposite way. All of that is more likely to some people than to believe that it just happened by chance. I think this ties into your earlier talk about religion. When 
people will take coincidences and dumb luck as proof that the religion is correct or that there's a higher being. Or see, I knew this would work. This just confirms my original bias. And they're not willing to look at the other 10,000 examples that contradict it. Yeah, which brings me to my next point. It's not that the information is not there. People are choosing to ignore certain information. They're cherry picking. They pay attention if it agrees and ignore if it doesn't. So they're confirming their biases. Only looking for information that reinforces what they already believe. Yeah, you see it a lot with anti-vaxxers who are very vehemently opposed to vaccinations because they say it's part of big pharma, but they have zero problem going to a doctor or the emergency room when shit hits the fan. Oh, you got hit by a car? You have a broken bone? It's protruding from your skin? You need emergency procedure. And guess what? They got to pump you full of drugs. Are you still okay with that? Or are you like, no, 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 no. You got to do it naturally. I don't believe in it. No, chances are your instinct to live will override that and say, okay, whatever you got to do, just fix it up. And when you're recovering, guess what? They got to give you an IV drip. They got to make sure you're okay. They got to put you through physical therapy. If it hurts too much, you need to be on painkillers. They're all okay with that. But vaccinations, fuck that noise. Nope, you're not doing that to my kid. They're cherry picking. Yeah. I mean, Trump does it a lot with immigrant examples. He'll pick one or two cases of illegal immigrants committing a crime and then saying, see, these are dangerous. It's like, you do realize all the past mass shooters were American citizens, but you don't see anybody going, see, Americans are the true danger. That's what a lot of people do. They're like, Use one example for a group they don't like to represent everybody, but with a group they do identify with, they'll be like, well, that doesn't represent everybody. Not all white people do that. It's fucked up. I see it a lot in a lot of these like thought leader podcasts, like Joe Rogan, for instance, where he tries to seem very neutral, but on the rare occasion, he brings on somebody who's from the left. And they bring up problems on the right. Well, he'll be quick to correct them and be like, well, not everybody's like that. Those are just dumbass people. Those don't count. That's not everybody. But he'll always point out five crazy social justice warriors on Twitter to represent all of the left. And when he does bring on somebody from the left on, he always tries to get them to admit, you have to admit you guys have problems with these social justice people or people who are like getting triggered by everything, right? So that's an example of. If somebody brings up somebody on the right who's problematic, he's like, no, that's not everybody. But with somebody who's on the left, who's annoying, then he's like, you know how the whole left are like that. And that's an example of cherry picking. He recently brought up Gavin McGinnis and he was trying to explain that, oh, no, the Proud Boys was started off as a joke. No, it went crazy. No, they didn't have a leader. But it fails to mention that, okay, if that's the case, then why did the Proud Boys recently come out? And saying, we found a replacement. Not to mention, he said, Gavin McGinnis can't be racist. He's married to an indigenous person. Okay, <laughs> Donald Sterling had a bunch of black guys on his team and he was still racist as fuck. That doesn't mean anything. Yeah, to him, there's no such thing as a racist. They're all provocateurs. And he'll never say somebody's evil. Like somebody will bring up a previous guest that he's friends with and they'll say, oh, they're a bad person or whatever. He's like, he's not a bad person. He's just being funny or people who are on the right are attacking people on Twitter saying some of the most awful things. And instead of saying they're awful people, he'll say they're just dumb. But with some left-wing feminists, he'll be like, that's the problem. 
Those are some of the worst, awful people you could be around. Just stay away from them. I think it might be a case of where he has a bias towards these right-wing guests because they do nothing but suck up to him. So that's why he's more willing to defend them. Whereas maybe some of his more progressive guests are willing to call him out on certain biases and like, hey, that's not okay when you do so-and-so. But like you said, instead of saying, hmm, maybe I'm wrong, it's easier to double down. It's like, well, no, that's not what I meant. Oh, no, you got to give him a chance. Yeah. Like with Jordan Peterson, he'll always be like, man, you're the most misunderstood person there is. And then he just talks about how everybody else is wrong. But if you're admitting that he's the most misunderstood and that's weird, why don't you ever ask yourself, wait, why are you so misunderstood? What the fuck are you saying that people are reacting to? Because if you're going to take both sides, then you take the side that he might be misunderstood and then do those explanations. Then you got to go to the other side and be like, wait, but why are you being so misunderstood? Why are you uniquely so misunderstood compared to other people? What is it that you're saying? And if everyone else is interpreting him wrong, how do you know that you're interpreting him right? And then you could explore that side, but he doesn't. You know, as a kid, I grew up watching Seinfeld and almost every episode, Jerry, George and Elaine had different girlfriends and boyfriends. And it was funny to watch because, oh, they have a new partner and they're crazy and they have all these quirks. You watch enough it's like, you know what? The main character, those are the guys with the problem because they're the ones that are constantly finding reasons to break up with them. And they're super petty and they can't get over certain things. And then it's funny from a point of view of a viewer watching a sitcom. But in real life, if you had those friends, you will cut them out the next day because like, you guys are crazy. There's no way I could be your friend. You're not misunderstood. You're just paranoid. Yeah. If all you meet are assholes, then what's the common denominator? You. Then you might be the asshole. And in the case of a friend... If they're constantly complaining to you about every asshole they meet, then they might be the asshole worth cutting off. That's what a reasonable person would do. But, you know, we're tribal. You might start denying those facts about your friends and protect them because it protects your own identity. You know, like my friend's not a racist. He's just dumb or he's just being funny or he's a provocateur. So going along with that and our previous talk about religion and this also applies to politics. There's the bias of unfalsifiable beliefs. So you try to act neutral and reasonable. And a lot of these thought leader podcasts will do that because you try to seem open-minded to certain things. But here's how it works. You're open-minded to science or facts or logic only if it can strengthen your belief, but never if it weakens it. You can give me all this information on why I should agree with you, but there is no information I can give you that will make you agree with me. So the dial can only turn one way. It's rigged. The logic is rigged to only go one way. I mean, that's literally a bias. It's not a free flow of information, but instead, only certain information can move and only in one direction. All roads leads to you being right. But even the very notion of being biased is something hard to convince people of. In debates between believers and atheists, moderators will ask the atheists, is there anything that could change their mind? And they can list several scientific methods how their minds can be changed. 
if certain things can be proved in experiments or if certain things happened. Because what they have is not faith. Because faith is a leaning or a bias. It's just knowing, not believing. They know this is how gravity works. But when you believe, you're making a choice. So regardless of what happens, you're going to keep choosing to believe something. Meaning facts or physics itself is always going to work this way. Your belief might be inconsistent to everything else and may not work to explain anything that happens in the world. It's just a bunch of stuff that you put together and the logic behind it might be very convenient. So in these debates, when the moderator asks the believer, is there anything that'll have you change your mind about God? They always say no. There's nothing you can say or do or provide that will make them change their mind about it. That's not a debate. And people are the same with climate change or the shape of the earth or with conspiracies. So what are they debating? Why even have debates? There is no debate as a debate means both sides are open to the truth. But arguing with someone who will never change their mind by definition can't be a debate because only one side is seeking truth. I don't need to pray to strengthen my belief in gravity. That's just knowledge. That's different from constantly working to try and believe something. That's actually evidence of motivated reasoning. It's a round peg trying to go into a square hole. I'm trying to force that, which is just motivated rationalization. But if the round peg goes into every round hole, then I know that. If you have to pray every day to try to convince yourself you're from Mars, you're probably not from Mars. Your reasoning is motivated by your want to believe, not your want to seek the truth. We usually see this bias emerge in people who are anti-science, people who are incredibly religious and tribal when it comes to political beliefs. If you want to take something like economics, it might also come down to communication. You might be convinced that a high GDP is proof that the country is doing great, but the wage hasn't increased at all. How can you really say that we're all doing better? But then you just double down. It's like, yeah, but the GDP is, look at it. The stock market has never done better. We're clearly doing better as a country. It's like, no, we're not. How many homeless people do we have? How is it that side hustle and a second and third job became the norm? It's no longer, oh, wow, you must be saving up for something. Now it's just, hey, so how can you afford this? Do you have something else on the side in order to pay for this? So it just comes down to, one, you don't want to get out of that bubble because your leaders, your politicians, the people in your congregation have already told you, oh, no, this is what we need to believe. And if you don't have your own, not just evidence, but understanding of a subject, you'll just go along with what everyone tells you. So do you think there's any point to arguing or debating with people like that? I think not so much debate, but if they're only willing to put out their view, you put out your view and then you just call it what it is. That's right. So you don't debate that. You just fight it. You're not trying to change their mind. You're just competing with their information. And the best shot you have is with the youngest people. Because what do you think about that explanation? Like a lot of these science communicators like Bill Nye or Neil deGrasse Tyson 
or people like that who I don't agree with with their idea that the problem is scientific comprehension, that you just need to explain things to people. I think that works with young people because they don't know anything. They're a blank slate. But people with firmly held beliefs, that rarely changes somebody's belief about climate change or something that's really impactful. Do you think we're just misguided in trying to explain things to people? I think to a certain degree, dumb people just need to die off. (laughs) That's really, I'm not saying mass extermination or genocide, but certain people, if they don't understand certain truths, they're not going to, and you just have to wait for them to get old and pass. Well, that's what a scientist Max Planck said is, we think change happens by people changing or people changing their minds about something and then we create a change. But what he said was that's not how change happens in the arc of human history. Change happens because people who had a certain belief died off and were replaced by new people who didn't hold that same belief. So it's not that enough people in their lifetime changed their minds and created a big change. It's people who had old ideas eventually through the natural cycles of history just became old, died off, and the newer people had new ideas. And so that became the new normal which in a long enough time is fine. But with things like climate change, we might need things to change before all the baby boomers disappear. Because if we have to wait for all of them to die off before we can make massive changes, the problem might be so big that there's nothing we can do about it. And also, if that's the truth, that real change never happens unless people with old ideas die off, that's a lot less hopeful also. It's very depressing to think about. It is incredibly depressing to think about, but I don't think we're going to get solutions from generations past. I don't think boomers are going to present great ideas. I love Bernie Sanders. He's not going to come up with anything that's going to save the future. What he's actually pushing for are ways for younger generations to come up with solutions in order to address real problems. Bernie Sanders doesn't have a team of scientists working to fight climate change, but he's hoping to fund it so that at some point somebody will come up with the breakthrough. Because he knows there's no 78-year-old scientist like, I got it. This is it. It's probably somebody right now, maybe at the undergrad level, or people who are in their 30s and 40s coming up with certain things like we just need a couple more million dollars to test this out to make sure that we can reduce carbon. That's what's going to change. And we're running out of time. Yeah, because... For us to even solve it, we might need a systemic change. If all the brains that could solve this problem are going into jobs to make a fucking new app, and we have a brain drain from the side that's trying to solve the problem of climate change, then the incentives are all wrong. And so you might need a new system that has new incentives or changes the whole incentive paradigm. Let's say if the government were to sponsor an initiative to find a solution to this and winner gets 20 million, 25 million, 30 million, not just in grants, but that type of fame and prestige. And you could be the guy, you could be the one to save the earth, save the planet. That's some superhero shit. It's one of those things where we could do it. 25 million is a drop in the bucket. Would that work? I wonder if we're even past that point where in the future, maybe the global climate catastrophe will separate people in the world into two parties, those who want to live and those who want to die. If it gets bad enough, you can't even have democracy anymore because 
you can't have people arguing and trying to figure out how do we steer the ship. You could get to a point where having it open-ended like that and everybody tries to participate. That works if we have a long time. Let's say, for example, you're five years from the brink. We don't have time for that anymore. Look, I, I hate fascism. I hate dictators. But if you get to that point where it's live or die, then sometimes you need one person to steer the ship and be like, this is what we're all going to do. And hopefully it's not the person who steers it for the party that says, let's all die. What you're talking about, that freedom to pursue stuff, democracy, these are all things we can enjoy because we have time and we have resources and we have the earth. But essentially, you can't have democracy and opportunities if we're all dead. Well, maybe we can do what Ben Shapiro suggested. If climate change gets bad and California goes underwater, we could just sell the real estate and move. <laughs> I don't know who we're going to sell it to. Maybe Aquaman. Maybe it'll be Atlantis Part 2. But yeah, we can always do that, I guess. He would be a great example of another common bias, which is called Dunning-Kruger. And it's essentially where you think you know shit, you don't. You think you're smarter than you are. This goes back to the ego thing that I was talking about. But it also includes self-awareness. So if you're dumb, but you know you're dumb, you can't actually be that dumb. People knew Socrates wasn't dumb because he knew he knew nothing. That actually takes a certain amount of self-awareness and self-knowledge. So he's proving that he can't be that dumb then. But if you're so dumb, you don't even know that you're dumb, then that's really dumb. Yeah, I remember I was reading George St. Pierre's book, and he talks about this specifically, where a good chef will make one dish, and then he'll realize, oh man, how many variations of this one dish are there? How many different spices can I use? What about the temperature? Can I broil this? Can I bake it? Can I make this sweet? I know nothing about cooking. I need to do more of this. Oh man, there's a lot to learn. Whereas other people might buy a Blue Apron kit, make a couple of meals and be like, I'm a chef. I know everything there is to know about cooking. Oh man, you don't know what the fuck you're doing and you're in charge of policies. This is going to be a problem. In ancient Greece, the thought leader were philosophers. So you had Socrates and you had Plato and Aristotle and so forth. Today, the thought leaders aren't philosophers or academics at all. They're just YouTube bros. They have no thought, but they're leaders. <laughs> yeah. Small think leaders. I kind of blame TED Talks because <laughs> that created an environment where just people with a lot of fans or a lot of followers like Tony Robbins or whoever goes up there and gives a talk or a CEO goes up there and gives a talk. And now they're a fucking thought leader. They're the new modern philosopher. It's this proliferation of inspiration porn. Yep. But with these ancient philosophers, they all knew that they didn't know anything. But how many people now who are thought leaders have that attitude or even have that self-awareness that they know they know nothing? I can't think of one person. Maybe they don't explicitly say they know everything, but the difference is those ancient philosophers it was their speaking point to always tell you they don't know nothing. Yeah, we see the opposite when Trump says, I'm highly intelligent. I went to Wharton. It's like, 
So what? You went to war in the 70s off your dad's money. That shouldn't be proof that you know how to run a business. It'd be one thing if, hey, listen, I ran a successful gym. I know how to run a restaurant. No, you don't. That doesn't prove anything. You can't go off saying, I know, fill in the blank. Well, I know how to do this. So I must be an expert in so-and-so as well. In the ancient Greek philosophy model, the more you try to say you're an expert or you're an authority on something, the more approved you're an idiot because you weren't aware of how much you were lacking. And the reason why Socrates annoyed so many people and I think ultimately got killed was because whenever people try to talk to him, he would just talk and would try to have a conversation. But people tend to make absolute claims or some claim of ultimate knowledge. And he would always ask, why? How do you know? And then they would give some kind of answer. And then he's like, how do you know? And then you would explain some more. And it would be, how do you know or why or some version of how do you know or why? And that's what drove everybody crazy. And that's why some people who have friends who are actual philosophers say, oh, so annoying to argue with a philosopher. And I disagree. I say, no, it's not. Because the philosopher is not trying to argue with you. You're the one trying to argue with them. Because you keep trying to claim that you have absolute knowledge and they keep asking you why you think that. Why do you think you know? Or how do you know? If you just said, I don't know, the conversation would end. But what Socrates found out, he wasn't trying to make a point, but it was just that people will never get to the point to say, I don't know. And that's the other thing about all these thought leaders now out there where they don't ever say they don't know. And that's Dunning-Kruger. That's the thing that Socrates was trying to show everybody is self-examine yourself and be open to the idea that you're fallible, that you might not know. I remember old Greek generals would have somebody follow them and tell them after victories, memento mori, which means you will die. So as a reminder that everything, even your life is fleeting, but people will go about, especially today, thinking they're never wrong and thinking they'll never die. And I think sometimes you just need a reminder that everything in here is fleeting, including your knowledge. You might know everything about computers one day, and now what's going to happen when they get into quantum computing? You're really not going to know. So Paul, after this conversation, are we fucked? Are we all going to just destroy the planet? Or will Gen Z and the generations after that, will they be able to right the ship and and solve a lot of the problems that has been already created. I can tell you 100% that I don't know. And I could say that with absolute certainty. We are 100% fucked.